We are in the second division of Acts, and this is the scattering, which is chapter 8, verse 4, through 1225. This division records the spread of the gospel past Jerusalem to all Judea, Samaria, and beyond, in fulfillment of Jesus' mandate in Acts 1.8, due to the persecution of the Christians at the hands of the Jewish leadership. Two things result from this. First, the focus is no longer on the apostles in Jerusalem. They will gradually cease to be the driving force in the spread of the gospel. Other disciples, like Philip, will play a major role in the spread of the gospel and in the conversion of Saul and the beginning of the ministry of the Gentiles. Second, the gospel will begin to move into the Gentile world, and this is first seen with Philip's conversion to the Ethiopian and then Peter's conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius which opens the door to many Gentiles accepting Christ. This becomes a transition to Saul's ministry to the Gentiles that becomes the focus and the following division. So this is the transition out of Jerusalem to the world. This is the transition from the Gentiles exclusively to, sorry, from the Jewish people exclusively to the Gentiles. The first section in this division is the ministry of Philip. And this is chapter 8, verses 4 through 40. In this section, Luke records the ministry of Philip, who was not an apostle, but was just a, as a key to preaching the gospel. He opens the door to the Samaritans, who had already encountered Jesus during his ministry and became followers of Jesus. The Samaritan mission does not lead to the Gentile mission, for this is not the beginning of the Gentile mission. We're going to first be introduced to Samaria. And Samaria is that region that's just north of Judea. Real quick background, I know I've talked about this in the past and that kind of stuff, but in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and they sacked um, the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And the vast majority of the Israelites, they're pretty much all evil. All the good, godly Israelites that were still left in the ten northern tribes over the years had basically migrated to Judah, where it was a little bit better. And so it left Israel in the north of ten tribes pretty much with just totally wicked people. So when the Assyrians came, they killed easily 80 to 90 percent of the Israelites in the ten northern tribes. And then they scattered the rest of them, and they left the poorest of the poor behind. And so when they did this, the Assyrians basically took that part of the world and it was like basically if that part of the world was an ant farm, they just shook it as hard as they could. And then everybody just scattered. Um, they deported people from here to over to here and here to there and there to there to there and they mixed up all the people groups so that nobody could communicate with each other so nobody could rebel with each other. And by nobody, I don't mean like nobody, nobody, but just large cultures and populations were now fragmented. They moved the Israelites out. They left some of the poor behind. They brought other people from Babylon and Assyria and Hittites and Egypt, and they brought them in. And, of course, they're going to spend the first couple of years just learning how to communicate, um, trying to survive, and eventually they begin to intermarry with each other. And they became a group of people, and they went into pagan idolatry because a lot of them were pagans. Then eventually in 586, the Babylonians would sack Judah in the north and carry most of them into exile. Most of them did not die because they, um, they heeded the warning even though they were still pretty bad. That means that Assyria started becoming... What happened is the Assyrians then re, redistrict, because right, 
That's what foreigners like to do when they conquer people, draw random lines everywhere and divide people up. And so they redistrict everything, and they called that part of the region Samaria based on the primary city that was in that region, Samaria. And so they went over a long period of time. And then when the Judea came back from exile in 536 B.C. under the Edict of Cyrus II, um, the Judeans, um, the tribe of Judah mostly came back and they settled in Ju Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, which these are in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And basically, they didn't want anything to do with these Jews. These Jews were half-breeds. They were intermixed. They had some pagan influences. They excluded them. They closed their doors to the foreigners that the prophets said that they should have opened their doors to and invited them in. And they became pure-blooded ethnic Jews only um, to the discrimination of everybody else. Then, of course, the Samaritans didn't like being discriminated against. They didn't like being rejected from helping rebuild Judah. And so this hostility began to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And then eventually the Samaritans built their own temple. And then that became like a huge no-no to the Jews in Judea. And then eventually when the Greeks came in, they overtook everything. The Romans came in. And eventually they merged all these regions and districts together. And then a group of Jews called the Hasmoneans began to conquer everything and absorb everything under their power, and all of Israel became restored under the Jewish leadership. But they still didn't like the Samaritans. That's what we see in the Gospels with Jesus and why the, you know, the disciples are like, should we call down a lightning on them and kill them all? And Jesus is like, no. Um, <laughs> that's a little harsh. We see that now. And so Philip is a Hellenistic Jew which means he's not a purebred Hebraic Jew necessarily. He's part of the outlining outside of Judea. And there's almost, can't say exactly what God is doing here, but one can only guess that God is choosing a Hellenistic Jew to go to the Samaritans and not a Hebraic Jew. A Hebraic Jew would not have been, I mean, the Jews are not liked at all by the Samaritans and vice versa, but a Hebraic Jew would be liked even less than a Hellenistic Jew. At least a Hellenistic Jew is Hellenized. They have adopted the Greek language. They, they understand they're not as hoity-toity necessarily as what might be more common in Judea. And so they probably would, definitely would have not accepted the, the apostles with their authority and all that kind of stuff. And so God is choosing Philip one of the seven that was picked in the earlier chapter in order to go to the Samaritans and begin to first spread. Now, once again, they're not, they're not Gentiles. They're not seen necessarily as Gentiles. Um, they're not seen as Jews. They're seen as a half-breed. So they would have fit into a different category in the Hebraic Jew's mind. So this isn't the beginning of the Gentile spread because the Samaritans still see themselves as Jewish. They still worship Yahweh and the temple that they have built in Mount Gerizim. And they follow the Jewish customs. So this would not be seen as the beginning of the Gentile ministry, rather just the first step of going out from an exclusive cliquish group of Judaism, the outskirts, so to speak. Chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word where they went. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Samaria is north of Judea, north of Jerusalem. You're like, well, that's kind of odd. How did he go down? Well, everything is down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the temple is. 
and Jerusalem is where the temple state is. Jerusalem is up on a hill itself. And so in the Jewish mindset, everything is down from Jerusalem. If you're going east, if you're going west, if you're going north, you're going south, you're going down. And that's the way. So this is a, um, a religious, um, theological um, a, a relation to God kind of going down, not a geographical down. Which kind of makes sense because even if you're going down, you're still not going down. We're on a ball. He went down from Samaria. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. Now remember, Christ has the idea of king, God king, ruler. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, Evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now the point of this is, Philip is doing the exact same thing that Jesus did, and the exact same thing that the apostles did. And it's showing that the ability to do miracles, the ability to heal people, the ability to drive out demons, is not exclusive to the apostles. First, we saw with the apostles that this is not exclusive to Jesus. We saw that in the Gospels when he sent the 70 out and that kind of stuff, and even more so after um, Pentecost. But now what we're seeing is this is not exclusive to the apostles. There is nothing. The apostles may have a greater authority and a teaching and an instruction of the Gospel because they were the ones who were the closest and personally taught by Christ. But other than that, there is nothing that gives them a, a greater superiority than anybody else. There's nothing that gives them a greater privilege or a greater power or an entitlement over anybody else. Yes, there's a hierarchy and authority only because they were chosen and they know more, but, but that's it, merely it. And so the fact that Philip is this Hellenistic Jew who kind of came into it late in the game, so to speak, and was chosen to be a leader late in the game, and by late in the game we're talking about a couple of months later, is yet he is able to do the same things. And the Spirit of God, regardless of who it's in, is capable of doing the same thing as in anybody else. Verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Simon is known outside the Bible. He shows up outside the Bible as Simon Magus, as in Simon the Magician. And he shows up outside the Bible as one of the early fathers of a a Christian cult known as Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is not fully developed at this time in the book of Acts. Right now, it's just a dualistic kind of a way of thinking. And dualism has this idea that good and evil are equal with each other. Now, you can have different kinds of dualism. There's a type of dualism where you believe that good and evil are balanced and that the ultimate desire is for good to overcome evil one day and that whether how you act will empower one side or the other. So your behavior, good, would empower good to be better. And who knows, And your bad behavior will empower bad and the cosmic forces of the universe and that whatever humanity chooses to do on the large will determine who is going to be the victor in some future eschatological kind of a day and of course everybody thinks and hopes for a good 
But then there's the dualism where basically good and evil are balanced and they're both one and the same. They're both two parts of God. And neither one is right or wrong. And it's all a matter of perspective. You may say, well, cancer is evil, obviously, because it's killing a human. And he was, But then the cancer could say that doctor is evil because it's killing him. And so it's all just a matter of perspective. And, of course, they believe in reincarnation. So you may be like, oh, well, the, the Germans killing the Jews was obviously evil. And they say, ah, the Romans got reincarnated as the Jews. And the Christians got reincarnated as the, the Nazis, Germany. And therefore, it's just they deserve it. They deserve all that happening to them. So that's how they view it. And so this dualism idea of basically good and evil being the same has this idea that everything comes from God, monism, and that everything is God, and everything is in God, and therefore everything is equal, and everything just needs to be balanced and harmonized, and we can't reject one thing or the other. And so Simon Magus had these ideas. This is what's called mystery religions. And he believed he was a divine power. And outside of the Bible, he actually believed that he um, actually had the ability to levitate, he had the ability to fly, he, had the, he was tapped into the God force, and he was the voice of the God force, an impersonal, unknowable being that we can all tap into. And so this is why it says he thought he was to be a divine. Obviously, he was able to do some kind of a magic. Either he was just really good at magic and wowed people, and they thought it was divine, or the demons have given him the ability to do things and another dimensionally kind of sense, and they um, thought he was divine. He, obviously in this story, is very attracted to Christianity. And we're going to learn later outside the Bible that he will take Christianity, the ideas, and the mystery religions of the Greeks, and begin to merge them with each other, and this is going to become the beginning of what we know as Gnosticism, or the idea that mystery religions, we are all gods, is mixed with Christianity, and Christ is just the ultimate embodiment of God and in a we-are-all-gods kind of a sense. And he's coming to teach you how you can all become gods and be freed from the material realm, which is a prison. This is the beginning of that. So Simon Magus is wowing people with his magic. Magic is also done through rituals and incantations and spells and all kinds of stuff, not just by mere let-it-be-done. Or in the words of Picard, make it so. They followed him because he had made them. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And when they arrived, they prayed for them, and that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Witherington says this about the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit comes sometimes with apostles present, sometimes without. Sometimes with the laying on of hands, sometimes without. Sometimes very close to the time of water baptism, sometimes not. Sometimes before water baptism, sometimes after, as here. The point is that God's gift and God's control, the book of Acts suggests God's sovereignty over the whole matter, not that the matter is in the control of clerics, not even the apostles. There's no official, this is the way that God does it. But there are many different ways all throughout Acts 
of how God brings the Spirit versus baptized. Sometimes they're baptized and then the Spirit comes. Sometimes they accept and then get baptized in the Spirit. I mean, there's all these different mixtures. And most likely what's happening is because they're bridging out into a new world. A world where it would be like the Jews would be like, of course we became Christians. Of course we got the Holy Spirit. But now we're going to the Samaritans and they're like, no, 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 no. Right? They're not chosen by God before Christ came. Why would they be accepted post-Christ? And who would believe them? Especially, yeah, Philip is kind of respected, but is he respected by everybody? I mean, he's an Hellenistic Jew. They were obviously ignoring the widows who were Hellenistic Jews. So do they look down on Philip, a certain group? And so he comes back and he says, look, they're accepting. They're like, whatever, we don't accept you anyways. You're a lower class of Christian because you're Hellenic Hellenist. So what's happening is they're believing and then they're getting baptized. But now God is just holding the Holy Spirit back, so to speak, to allow the apostles, who no one questions their authority in the church because they were chosen by Christ, to come and then lay hands on them. They're coming to lay hands on them. And when the Holy Spirit enters and everybody sees that, then there's an authority, not that the authority of the apostles is necessary for them to receive the Holy Spirit, but the authority of the apostles is necessary to publicly validate to anybody who might question what is happening that, yes, this is indeed what happened. Will you need laying hands all the time later? Will baptism always, the Holy Spirit, be delayed afterwards? No. But remember, we're talking about a new stage in world history, and new things are happening. This is being delayed for the apostles to prove, and Philip is rightfully seeking out the apostles to come and, and, and give the public proclamation to validate what is actually happening. And once this happens, no one can question. I mean, yes, people outside the church can, but they question everything. But within the church, no one can question the legitimacy of the Samaritans coming to Christ. And the, the apostles are less likely to do that because they already kind of learned that when Jesus gave them a theological slapping in the face during his life ministry when they wanted to bring lightning bolts on them and all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting is it said that the Spirit of God came upon all the people, but it did not come on Simon. So Simon believed and he was baptized, but he never got the Holy Spirit when the apostles showed up. Because especially when it makes clear that he's seen the Holy Spirit out there doing things, and then he wants it. When they arrived, they prayed on them they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them on any of them and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon has always been interested in power. Granted, we're all interested in power. But it's showing that he's still interested in that. And some people have argued that he did become a Christian and truly believed because he believed. And, and that's what it says. And then he was baptized. The problem is he never received the Holy Spirit. And that's true salvation. And this is made clear by the fact that he's seeing it out there, not in himself, he wants it. Why would you want something that you already have? And then he's asking them to lay hands on him so he can receive it. And then clearly wants the ability to do the same thing to everybody else. 
Everything in the way that he's thinking and everything about the narrative talking about it is showing that it's very clear that he has not actually truly accepted Christ. This shouldn't be too shocking. Because remember, even James in the gospel, sorry, James in the letter of James says, you believe that Jesus Christ is God and he died on the cross? Fine, good for you. Even the demons do, and they're going to hell. And then we saw this in the wilderness generation where they believed and they followed God, and it says they all believed, they all did the sacrificial lamb, they all followed him out, and yet they died in the wilderness, and they rebelled, and they never ever showed any fruit of God. Then when we get to Psalms, and then later Hebrews will quote Psalms, Hebrews will say, for if they had believed, they wouldn't have not rebelled and died in the wilderness. But because they did not believe, they did not inherit the promises of God. And so the other Hebrews reading that and reading Psalms comes to the conclusion that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that you can believe and not have believed. And so remember the word believe is just, we use it in different ways. A factual, I believe. But the Bible is always using the word belief as trust, following and commitment, not perfection, but at least a desire to obey when you don't repent and you're seeking out God. And so Simon hasn't truly believed. He's believed certain information, mostly that if I do this, I can get power. And that is not all about what the gospel is. The fact that he even says, I want that power, shows he's completely misunderstood the cross. Completely misunderstood the cross. The very person that he's seeking the power from is the very person who laid it all down at the cross and was the only one who had the right to have the power. And so he wants this. And he comes to Peter and John and he begs them for it. Because he... Now, well, the other thing too is this guy has spirits living in him. Outside the Bible, it is, they make it very clear that he was one with spirits and spirits lived inside him. He claimed to have spirits living in him and that they give him the power to do things. And he knew things about the universe that other people didn't know because they had spirits living in him telling him. And get the fact that he so desperately wants what Philip and Peter and, and, and John and what the other people are getting shows you that here's a man who's in connection with demons and spirits and is doing amazing things that everybody is wowed by him. And yet he's recognizing that the power that these men have, the apostles and the disciples, is far superior than anything that he's ever gotten from any spirit. Far superior than anything he's ever gotten from any spirit. And he wants it. He wants the power. And the fact that Peter's going to so harshly, harshly, rebuke him, shows that he has not truly believed in Christ. So Peter answered him, verse 20, may your money perish with you. You don't say, may you perish in a damnation kind of a sense or in a death judgment sense if they're truly a believer and they have the Holy Spirit. May it perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. All this makes it clear that he's not a believer. Repent of this wickedness and pray to Yahweh or pray to the Lord because he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. These are not words that are used of believers. Yes, 
Do we still sin? Yes. Do we still have addictions? Yes. But are we enslaved to sin and held captives by sin? Not according to Romans. Not according to Romans. Are we said to have perished? Not according to the gospel, so that none shall perish. Is Peter rebuking him, saying, may you go to hell? If you keep going the way that you are, right? But then he turns around and says, repent so that you can be forgiven. So this is not Peter saying, may you go to hell and damn you with no hope. This is Peter saying, may you perish if you keep going along this path and keep trying to deceive people and make the gospel about power and control and think that you can buy these things. It is very clear that he is held captive by this. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. He's still missing it. Then, 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 Then pray to God and ask him that this wouldn't happen to me. Peter already told you how that's not to happen. Repent and accept Christ and be forgiven. It's very clear here. It's kind of like when Jeroboam, Jeroboam was one of the first kings of Israel when they split into two kingdoms. And he basically was worshiping other gods and the golden calves and all this kind of stuff. And a prophet came and condemned him and rebuked him harshly. And basically he said, you're going to die. And all those around you are going to be burned and all that kind of stuff for your false belief. And Jeroboam threatened to kill the prophet. And the God struck his arm with um, and, um, 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 atrophy. Okay, he's like um, turned it into stone or a stick or whatever it was. And then he begged God to heal him, but never repented. Never repented of his sin. He begged for healing. And God, in his grace and mercy, healed him, but nothing changed in Jeroboam. He so kept doing what he did, and eventually a prophet would come just a few months later and say, you're going to die now. Okay, you're so evil. And so there's this idea that he's not repenting. Repentance and faith is the only thing that frees you. Repentance and faith is the only thing that frees you. And all he's asking for is save me from horrible things. Save me from horrible things. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So what this is showing is that there is a demonic element that's opposing the gospel. There's a demonic element that's not only opposing people and possessing them, but there's a demonic element of teaching and leaders that are not necessarily accepting Christ. And they're going to go off. And and the sad part is he's going to start a cult um, that's going to threaten to overtake the church completely. And this is the first resistance to the gospel that we see in a, a power struggle. And that's important of those combinations. God knows what he's doing. He, he doesn't follow a pattern all the time. He doesn't follow this the way that you're supposed to do. He knows what he's doing in order to make sure that this is accepted and sustained in the fullest sense. And here we see that the devil is going to find any way that it can to undermine the gospel. It's going to do it through possessions. It's going to do it through false accusations. It's going to do it through attacking you physically. It's going to be doing attacking you um, theologically and reputation-wise. And here we see the devil trying to buy something. If he could have bought it, if he would have handed, if Peter and John would have been susceptible. I mean, you have to admit, for any human, this would have been tempting. Okay? If he would have accepted the money, Peter and John, and they would have accepted the money 
and said, you can have this, which we know they never would have, but that doesn't change the fact there still probably wasn't temptation, doesn't change the fact then this would have completely watered down the gospel. It would have shown that the gospel can be bought with money and it wasn't through Christ only. It shows you that the power of the Holy Spirit is not unique to any kind of a system or that kind of stuff. And this has been a huge detrimental kill to the gospel. That happens all the time today. People are selling miracles all the time. And yes, at least the church has been so established so well for so long that it's easy for the majority of us to say, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. But even then, it is still bruised the image and the way that people trust the gospel significantly throughout the years of people selling it, people selling it, the miracles and that kind of stuff. And so this is the direct attack on the legitimacy of the gospel, the uniqueness of it, and the necessity of faith in order to come to it. 